Coming up this evening on NTD Business. Wild scenes on Wall Street again today. More than $7 trillion has been wiped out this year. But have we hit the bottom yet? The Biden administration cancels gas and oil lease sales. One in Alaska, two in the Gulf of Mexico. Oil companies won't be able to drill in over 1 million acres. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Another chaotic day on Wall Street today and in crypto. America's largest crypto exchange, Coinbase, says full service has been restored to its website. But that's only after customers had trouble withdrawing their funds today. Coinbase admitted the site was facing outages and that users had trouble trading and accessing accounts. It was just yesterday the firm said that if it goes bankrupt, customers may lose all their crypto holdings. Coinbase is currently holding around a quarter trillion dollars in cash and crypto on behalf of its customers. On Tuesday, after reporting a $400 million loss in the first quarter, stocks plummeted to around $50 a share. The company was worth around $100 billion during its IPO last year. It's now valued at $15 billion. Coinbase says full service has been restored to its website. As such as crypto that's feeling the pain, over $7 trillion has been wiped off the value of stocks this year. Today, all three major indexes were down considerably again before staging a very late-day rally, ending pretty much flat for the day. Stocks that performed well when monetary policy was loosened during the pandemic are now dragging the market down. That's the central bank's titan to fight inflation. Zoom is down 27% this month, Tesla down 30%, Carvana 65%, Coinbase, like we mentioned, down 65%. The list goes on and on. Mostly tech stocks are companies with high valuations relative to their earnings. Today on Wall Street, the Dow fell 104 points, three-tenths of a percent, S&P 500 lost five points, one-tenth of a percent, and Nasdaq gained seven points, just shy of one-tenth of a percent today. The sell-off has even hit Apple. It's down 19% in the past month. It's no longer the world's most valuable company. It's been leapfrogged by environmentalists. Look away. Saudi Aramco, the world's largest oil producer. Aramco is up nearly 5% in the past 30 days as the world grapples with an energy shortage as Russian oil is taken offline and governments try to transition to renewables. Apple's dealing with supply chain problems as key Chinese cities remain locked down. But the drop in share price is also being driven by the Federal Reserve's plans to tighten monetary policy throughout this year. Chance Fanukin is chief investment officer at Oxbow Advisors. Asked him if there's any way back for those stocks that are down 60, 70 percent. Well, if you look back at the dot-com bubble, uh, you're trying to, at the end of something like that, figure out which of these companies really still have outstanding businesses, really smart CEOs, and will be able to find their way back. But the catch is it may take a very long time. Uh, if something's gone down by 90%, it has to increase by 10 times to get back to where it was at its previous high. And that could take a decade or longer if they're even able to do that at all. And so that's where I think trying to pay attention to how far something has declined from a record high doesn't suit you that well at this point. If you think something is very cheap or undervalued and you want to buy it, that's great. But you got to focus on the current starting point now, not how far it's fallen. Are you seeing any opportunities amid this sell-off? 
We've actually, over the last few months, been cutting back our exposure to markets based off what we've been seeing happening. And we don't think that this sell-off, uh, even in the near term, is complete yet. If we compare that to past uh, bear markets looking back over the last 12 years. So we're still keeping our exposure down. We're starting to see some valuations that look more interesting to us, but we could easily see the market decline at least another 10%. And uh, because of that, we're still just monitoring things and building up a list of companies that we'd be interested in at the right price. This concept and this idea of growth stocks and tech stocks selling off as soon as the Fed started tightening, this is something we've heard about for quite a while, a number of months at least, maybe even longer. Who exactly has lost money here? Who's been left holding the bag? I can think of a few different groups of investors. So. First off, there are just growth funds. There are growth investors out there that that's their strategy and that's what they're going to do. And so like Kathy Wood and the ARC funds might be one example, but there are other groups out there that we respect a lot that run growth funds that are down 35 to 50% this year. And they invest in good businesses, but it's just been a very difficult time for that strategy. Besides that, I think there also are just some everyday investors that maybe got a little bit sucked in with how well these types of stocks were doing in the last couple of years. And finally, I think it's still possible that over the last 12, 13 years, this mindset of buy the dip and uh, you know, any sort of pullback in the market, just jump back in and buy more of whatever stocks you like. And if you get any sort of a pullback uh, in the market of a certain amount, the Federal Reserve is going to come in and save you. That's not the way this is working anymore, because for the first time in 12 years, the Federal Reserve is more concerned about pulling down inflation and doing whatever it takes in that regard, rather than trying to promote employment growth or economic growth. You're right. There's been a trading frenzy the past couple of years. I'm sure you've got lots of text messages from friends asking for tips, some advice. You think this sentiment is going to change after this sell-off? Well, that's the funny thing right now. Uh, our managing partner, Ted Oakley, uh, talks to lots of clients. Uh, and I obviously, as you mentioned, uh, you have lots of friends who like to invest or, or dabble with their uh, retirement accounts. We haven't heard a lot of calls or texts from anyone. Uh, and I think that might just be that we haven't hit a point where there's been a real capitulation yet. As much as those of us who follow markets closely are seeing some of these large declines in individual companies or sectors, it hasn't seemed to hit the mainstream to the point that we're getting texts from any friend or family member really worried. And that might tell you that there's still a bit more of this to go. No capitulation yet. Incredible. By the dip, Chance, right? Chance <laughs> Finucane, Oxbow Advisors. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. And Jerome Powell will remain in his role as chairman of the Federal Reserve. He was confirmed by the Senate today and will now serve another four years. Powell will try to navigate the Fed through a period of historically high inflation, possibly an impending recession, too. The Fed's official mission is twofold. It's supposed to achieve maximum employment and keep prices stable, i.e. don't allow inflation to get out of control. But by many measures, inflation is running out of control. Today, we learned that wholesale prices rose by 11% in the 12 months through April. Wholesale prices can make their way to you, the consumer, so brace for more inflation. April's number is a bit of a slowdown, but still near the record high for March. The biggest inflation driver was energy. The cost of energy used to make one particular group of wholesale goods increased over 10% last month, one month. 
That was 80% of the goods' overall inflation. For another group of products, the indexes for diesel fuel, utility natural gas, jet fuel, plastic resins and materials all increased too. But despite the upward ongoing pressure on energy prices and the impact to your wallet, the Biden administration has just cancelled three major oil lease sales, two in the Gulf of Mexico, one in Alaska, and that'll block companies from drilling in over one million acres. In today's fake quarter, there's more. The Biden administration has canceled the sales of three major oil leases. Two are in the Gulf of Mexico, which it says is due to conflicting court rulings that impacted work on the lease sales. The other one is in Alaska's Cook Inlet, which the Interior Department says is due to lack of industry interest. You don't make a predetermined um, you know, answer of, of there's no interest without holding a lease sale to find out if there's interest. Rick Whitbeck is the Alaska State Director at Power the Future. Whitbeck says the lease areas are near actively producing basins, and he believes there's tremendous opportunity to lease those lands. Whitbeck finds the cancellations astonishing. The American Petroleum Institute, which represents all segments of America's oil and gas industry, says the administration talks about the need for more supply and acts to restrict it. It says the administration lacks commitment toward oil and gas development. Meanwhile, nonprofit ocean conservation group Oceana says big oil doesn't need more leases and that we cannot drill our way out of high gas prices and it would take years or decades for any new leases to begin producing. They're right, but it's only because of the delay tactics that the Biden administration has put on the permitting side. It takes way too long to, to, to process and permit those uh, opportunities. The national average gas price is currently around $4.41. Bay Quarter, NTD News. And the White House says the president will give an update on the nation's baby formula shortage today. A recall of one of the country's top producers, Abbott, has apparently led to a 40% of baby formula products going out of stock last month, saying it's a serious issue for families with small children will be stating the obvious. So how serious is the problem and what can be done to prevent it happening again? With us live is supply chain and logistics expert Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis. Ross, great to see you as always. How serious is this problem? Hey, Paul. Uh, you know, in the short term, uh, it's extremely serious. And, and for any family that has has an infant uh, that really depends on these products, that, that it's quite literally a life or death issue. And uh, everything that we, we could be doing, should be doing, no expense is spared to uh, move as much product as as these companies have an in inventory into the locations where there's really severe shortages. Uh, we should do so, you know, and, and stores are doing what they need to. They're uh, allocating purchases and saying, you know, limit one, limit two. Uh, but in the short term, it's really just get access to as many uh, supplies of the product as you can get them onto the shelves. Uh, from a longer term standpoint, the, the issue that we're really seeing here is, is a combination of two things. It's, it's panic buying, uh, which is happening now. Uh, but it's also the fact that we put ourselves in a situation where uh, due to regulatory capture, due to the way uh, the U.S. government wants to see as few of these companies as possible uh, because of how closely uh, tied they are to WIC and other programs, uh, it's just easier to manage to have fewer suppliers. So if you're Abbott and you have five plants in the entire country that produce these products, when one of those plants goes down, it takes a long time to ramp up production at a foreign site like they have in Ireland uh, or to increase production and, and change your fill lines around at your other plants in the U.S. to meet that demand. We also have a raw material issue. 
you know, when you look at what's in these products, uh, you know, it's not just a powder, right? It's, it's, you know, 20, 30 different ingredients on the label and it's a combination of lactose. It's whey protein, uh, which are dairy derived products. So if you have deficits or issues or supply chain hiccups affecting the dairy industry, that obviously has a knock on effect into the, uh, you know, into the raw material available to ramp up production, vitamins, minerals. A lot of these are produced overseas, uh, not produced here in the U S those have to be imported, uh, and scaled up. And those are coming from countries like China. Uh, they're coming from Germany, which has seen a huge hit in its vitamin production due to the natural gas uh, pipeline issues with Russia. So you, you start to see how the health and, and well-being of our children, of our infants, uh, is really impacted by just a combination of bad decisions, uh, a little bit of bad luck, uh, and the fact that you know we've sort of taken it for granted that all of these things that we need to make infant formula are still going to be there. Let me go back to a point you mentioned. What exactly is WIC and how does it factor into baby formula shortage? Yeah, so WIC is just the acronym for one of the programs that the United States Department of Agriculture manages. Uh, it's the Women and Children Program. And essentially what that is, is it's a benefits program that provides certain really essential uh, foods and beverages uh, to women and to children. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of social welfare. Uh, it's something that uh, a lot of families really, truly depend on that they need. Uh, and WIC is the program that I think I forget the statistic exactly, but I think it's about 50 percent of all infant formula sold in the U.S. is actually purchased and subsidized by WIC wow. uh, and put out onto the shelves. So uh, and, and that's done at the state by state level. In some states, Abbott is the only company that is the supplier of uh, WIC approved infant formula. In other states, it may be Mead Johnson who makes Enfamil. Uh, or it may be Gerber who makes their own line of products. Uh, in general, your store brand products uh, don't seem to apply to the program. So that's a, a great value for Walmart or a CVS or a, a Kroger brand, uh, which is made by a fourth company called Perigo. Uh, so you have uh, pretty limited options if you're on the WIC program uh, and in a specific state. And so when a factory goes down, that, that let's say that that factory is allocated to supply 10 states in the upper Midwest or, or throughout the country, uh, when that factory goes down, shuffling supplies that are approved under those programs from one state to another uh, in order to keep revenue flowing is, is a bit of a task. So you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that this WIC program has indirectly created like a monopoly in the baby formula space? It's certainly an oligopoly. Um, and the issue is, is that even within an oligopoly, if your choice is limited on one thing, you typically can get to purchase something else, unless you're talking about a, uh, a shortage of something that exists across a whole industry sector, for example. But in this particular case, if you depend on WIC and you have to buy Enfamil in your state, or you have to buy Gerber, or you have to buy Similac, which is the, you know, which is the Abbott line, um, you're, you're really in a tough place. Then you have to start making compromises on to buy some other formula that's readily available right there on the shelf for your child. Uh, now you have to come out of pocket to do that or it's not as subsidized uh, and that impacts your food budget or home budget. And uh, for a lot of these families, that's a really terrible choice to have to make. Got about 30 seconds. Do we see anybody calling for policy change in this regard? What would you recommend? I'd certainly recommend, uh, you know, any any sort of social welfare program being having an additional optionality built in, uh, you know, sort of like you see school systems say the dollar follows the child, not to the school. A lot of these programs should be able to be the same where families that do need uh, and do receive some form of um, 
subsidization of food and other critical materials, they should be able to buy those products at whatever stores possible uh, and whatever product. I'd also like to see the government really step in and say, we need to decentralize manufacturing of some of these critical food and feed ingredients uh, that families rely on and that uh, food processors rely on. Make it easier to get food onto the shelves as fast as possible when we do have these disruptions. Ross, we appreciate the insights. Not easy to get information on this topic for whatever reason, so we appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you, Paul. It's Ross Kennedy, Fortis Analysis. You heard it here in Entity Business. There you go. And leading causes of death in the United States amid the pandemic isn't COVID. For Americans aged 18 to 45, the leading cause of death is fentanyl overdoses. Fentanyl is flooding into the United States from across the border in record amounts. In 2021, enough fentanyl was seized by Customs and Border Protection to kill every American nearly seven times over. Drug overdose deaths topped 100,000 last year for the first time. Anthony's Don Ma has more. U.S. CDC data released Wednesday shows hundreds of Americans are dying every day from fentanyl overdoses. It only takes two milligrams of fentanyl to kill. One kilogram of fentanyl can kill 500,000 people. Derek Maltz is a former agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration Special Operations Division. He warns, don't buy pills or drugs that are not prescribed by a doctor. Because often, fentanyl, due to its extreme potency, is added to other drugs or pills and makes them cheaper and more powerful. They may contain deadly levels of fentanyl and you wouldn't even be able to see it, taste it, or smell it. Maltz recounts a story of how a young girl died from a fentanyl overdose after buying a fake pill on social media. Two years ago, three days before Christmas, a beautiful young girl, Alex Capilouto, who lived in California, came home from spring break on from Arizona State University, and she ordered one fake pill. I think it was a Percocet. She thought she was getting Percocet because she had some anxiety, maybe a little depression. And the drug dealer delivered it right to the house. She took one pill or half a pill, and her parents found it dead in the morning. This is happening all over the country. DEA Chief Ann Milgram told CBS that for teens now, getting a fake pill is as easy as getting Uber Eats because there's just so much illicit fentanyl in the country. The real issue is the Mexican cartels flooding the streets. It's like a tsunami of fentanyl in our streets in America, and that's why we're seeing so many deaths. But where are Mexican cartels getting the drug? China is sending precursor chemicals, which are key ingredients to make fentanyl, to Mexican labs. And these labs produce the fentanyl, then the cartels move the drug across the U.S. border. You know, we have a wide open border. Look at the numbers of apprehensions we have on the border, 221,000 last month. Now, you got to remember, the cartels control everything on the border. So as Border Patrol is doing migrant processing and babysitting, the cartels are sending in their drugs and their people right over the border and they're not being apprehended. DEA Chief Milgram says that Chinese chemical companies are the largest producers of precursor chemicals used to produce fentanyl. And Maltz says that China is using the drug to destabilize America. Based on my analysis is that the Chinese Communist Party have their unrestricted warfare against their adversaries. And this is just another tool in their toolbox. They're destabilizing our country. They're killing our future generation by using the Mexican cartels as a proxy to deliver this poisonous chemical substance all over America. 
Don Ma, NTD News. And the federal government has hit a new record for the largest monthly surplus. That is, the money the government gets from taxes and other sources has risen beyond expenses by a never-before-seen $308 billion. Total revenue for April was $864 billion, which is 97% higher than April of last year. Uh, the numbers aren't adjusted for inflation, which we are experiencing a lot of right now. Vance Ginn, chief economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, says on the revenue side, April is typically a month where the government collects more money because that's when many pay their tax bills. On the spending side, one-time expenditures like COVID stimulus payments have fallen off. Ginn says while this is a good sign, the federal government still needs to do more to control its spending. U.S. national debt is over $30 trillion. Ginn says as interest rates rise, the government is already spending more to service those debts. It's still to come. Stay with us. An all-electric small plane that glides smoothly on the ocean. The parent company is partnering up with Hawaiian Airlines. It already has the backing of big names like Peter Thiel and Mark Cuban. A small burger joint in Ukraine's capital is open for business again. It's trying to return to normal now that Russian forces have left. We have that and more coming up on NTD Business. Fake meat company Beyond Meat is showing signs of decreased demand in the U.S. market. And that is Sean Marshall. There's more. Beyond Meat Incorporated recently reported higher losses than expected due to higher spending, which caused a dip in the stock price. After the news, shares of Beyond Meat fell 22%. I asked people what they really think about Beyond Meat. Mateo said he it likes is, it. Sadly, it's the truth. It is more expensive than regular meat, but I think it's worth it in the sense that even if it's a bit more expensive than what you probably expect, you're helping the planet, which is worth it in my, in my book. Beyond Meat reported weaker demand for its products in U.S. supermarkets, which lessened its revenue. Ali wouldn't say that he likes Beyond Meat, but he also said he doesn't hate it. After, like, midnight, for instance, I try not to eat meat. That's, like, when I would more, most likely to eat, like, one of these things. And, like, I really don't need it to mimic meat. I don't understand why they're so bent on that. I don't need it to bleed. I don't need anything. I need it to taste good. I tried some myself for lunch. I'd say the texture was closer to meat than the taste, but it wasn't that bad for a plant-based imitation. In comparing prices of veggie burgers with Beyond Meat, it was a little higher price than most other brands, but their increased range of products might be the market corner that brings up the revenues they expect later this year. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And is it a plane or is it a boat? Hawaiian Airlines is investing in a fully electric sea glider in an effort to reduce fuel costs. The airline's partnering with Boston-based Regent for the new aircraft. Regent has raised $27 million from investors, including billionaire Peter Thiel's Thiel Capital and Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. Sea glider is powered by eight propellers and can reach speeds of up to 180 miles per hour. It can take off and land from harbors, making it an ideal for island hopping. 
That accounted for 20% of Hawaiian Airlines revenue before the pandemic. Sea gliders are also regulated by the U.S. Coast Guard, not the FAA, so pilots aren't required to complete 1,500 hours of training. Hawaiian Airlines is working on a, with Regent on a 100-seat sea glider, plans to start the service in 2028. And some businesses in Ukraine's capital are up and running again after Russian forces withdrew. Anthony Sandra Thomas is the story of one burger joint owner who's back. In a small courtyard of central Kyiv, a small burger restaurant is open for business. Igor Abramenko is the owner of OG Burger. He said he never imagined he would have to leave. Uh, I got the call at 6 o'clock in the morning, and a friend of mine called me and said, like, it starts, the war is, uh, starts actually now. Uh, it's, uh, they bombed us. Uh, we got, like, first uh, bombing uh, near Kyiv. After spending 30 years in Los Angeles, Abramenko returned to Kyiv two years ago. He opened a small hamburger restaurant, serving authentic burgers he mastered from his time in the U.S. But as the war started, friends and family urged him to leave. So he closed the restaurant and returned to his sons in L.A. As soon as Russian forces withdrew from the region, he returned to Kyiv and was able to reopen the restaurant. Why? Like I said, it's just something inside telling me that I have to be here. I'm not on the front line, I'm not a warrior, uh, but at least I, I, I do like one of the best burgers in Kyiv. <laughs> Abramenko said although there were problems with gasoline supply, business felt somewhat back to normal. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. That's the latest from the NTD business team on myself, Paul Graney. Can't still catch NTD Evening News. That's with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. For NTD Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.